so we're gonna we're gonna move on to the book. We're gonna move on to the book of Sirach, also called Ecclesiasticus. Right? As compared to Ecclesiastes, now we have Ecclesiasticus, and it's a bit, it's a long book. It's 51 chapters, and we're gonna spend two weeks on it. Um, this is a review of something we talked about before. Uh, Sirach is one of the Deuterocanonical books. One of the, uh, the Deuterocanonical books. Number of the seven additional books that the Catholic Old Testament has that are not in the Hebrew Bible or in the Protestant Old Testament. So the Catholic Old Testament has seven additional books that neither the Protestant nor the Hebrew Bible has. And the books are the Deuterocanonical books, and they're called the Deuterocanonical books. And they are Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, also called the Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, Free Study, Baruch, and 1 and 2 Maccabees. Seven additional books. In addition, Catholic Bibles have some additional parts, some additional verses in the book of Esther and in the book of Daniel. These are all written these are all written uh, within I think the last book was probably written like a hundred or two hundred years before Jesus. How do you call Catholic? I'm saying these books are in the Catholic Bible. Yeah. But and our Roman Catholic Bible, they're not in the Hebrew Bible. And these two are on the bottom also. And parts of Esther and parts of Daniel are also Catholic. in the Catholic Bibles. When you not think the first Catholic Bible came in? Uh, I think the... Uh, you mean one was it officially pulled together? Both, I think both tell us that. Catholic both here for when? Who knows when? When did oh, they? the coming of Jesus. Year one, right? Christ died. Jesus, right. Well, the books. Well, all these books were already written by that time, by the time Jesus came. That's what I'm trying yeah. to say. Okay. Yeah. They were, the last one was written probably 100 years before Jesus, the Old Testament. Okay? So, But the books that, again, we're only talking about the Old Testament. The books that everybody has, both the Protestants and the Catholics, and the Jewish canon are called proto-canonical books. So proto meaning first, utero <coughs> meaning second. So the we call it proto-canonical or deutero-canonical, and the word canonical or canon are those books that the church has officially accepted as divinely inspired. Right, so when you say, what's in the canon, you mean the canon are those books that the church has accepted as being divinely divinely inspired and also contain the fullness of truth. The law. Oh, it's... But usually, usually when you, you say the law, usually it refers to the Torah or the Bible, <coughs> the first five books of the Bible. Although in the general, oh no, the can the canon is the term for all those books that are officially in the Bible. 
that had been accepted as being divinely inspired okay. without error and containing the fullness of truth, which would, which means everything you need to know is in there. There's, there's none of them missing. You've got everything you need to know. Okay. I'm going to hand it up to you again. Yeah. Um, <coughs> since I don't know the books of the Bible, is Ben Sira the same as? Yeah. Uh, ben Sira is another name for Sira okay. Ecclesiasticus, or Ben Sira or Ben Sira. It's also it's called okay. by that. Thank and you. it's a Deuterocanonical book. So you won't find it in the Protestant Bibles, although you might find it in an appendix in Protestant Bibles. So I'm, I'm going to again go through the back briefly the background as to why that happened. Um, the reason the reason for the difference is that the Catholic Bible is based on the Jewish Septuagint. Uh, and it's also the Septuagint is also referred to with the Roman numerals LXX, which is the Roman numeral for 70. A Septuagint is from the root, from the Latin root word for 70. It's based on that translation of the Bible. Um, and, and, the, and, and where that, and where that, this is again the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, and where that came from, this is tradition, Again, we're looking back over 2,000 years. Tradition, traditionally 70 Jewish scholars independently translated the Hebrew Bible from Hebrew into Greek. And traditionally, all they did it independently. Traditionally, all the translations came out the same. Now that's a nice tradition. Therefore, confirming what they did was right. That's not... Uh, that's not doctrine, that's just a, tra- that's just a tradition. Uh, and this translation from Hebrew into Greek was made in Alexandria. Alexandria is in Egypt. One to three, somewhere between one to, th- one, one to three centuries prior to the coming of Jesus. And they translated from Hebrew into Greek because it was a large Jewish, Greek-speaking population in Alexandria. We know about the various exiles, how the Jews got taken into exile. Well, they ended up going to a lot of places, and they didn't always come back. So over the years, a lot of, they call these the diaspora Jews. If, you, if you're in diaspora, mean you're living away from your homeland. So these diaspora Jews, their homeland, of course, is Jerusalem, but there was a lot of communities throughout the world at the time of Jesus. And this is a map showing some of the Jewish communities that were uh, throughout Asia Minor and Europe and down in Africa. The primary centers for Judaism were, of course, Jerusalem, but the next one was Alexandria that had a large Jewish population. And this is, this is about the time of Jesus. Of course, this developed into the centers coming up to Jesus. And when we, we studied about Hellenization, where uh, when Alexander the Great conquered the world, what he was doing was spreading the Greek culture, which meant the Greek language. So all in all these countries, the normal language became Greek. Right? Hebrew was only maintained in the homeland. So over the generations, 
the Jews living in Alexandria, as one generation went to the next, eventually they started speaking the native language of Greek. So there came a point where they needed the Bible in their native language. Right? We call that in the vernacular. If you have the vernacular language, vernacular means the language that the people speak. This is what happened when, after Vatican II, when we, we had the Mass that used to be said in Latin, they decided that we could have the Mass in the vernacular, meaning every country could have the Mass in their language that they normally <coughs> spoke. We were talking before about St. Paul. Yes, St. Paul, right. Well, there's a little more. Is that the cities he went to? Uh, not, all of, not all of them, but that's some of the evidence. Because when St. Paul went around, he always found Jewish populations. So you know there were populations. But there's other sources. I didn't visit all these cities, but a lot of these well, how was that he visited. What's that? Where did he fit in here? Well, he was... He was... Uh, uh, after within Christ? The, he's after Christ, yeah. Probably right. the half century after Christ. Right. So those days, what there would still be there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they translated the Bible into Greek for the Jewish people living in Alexandria. And again, this translation was done either the third to the fourth, third to the first century before Christ. Okay. So that when Christ came, there were two two sacred books. There was the again we're talking the Old Testament. There was the version that was in Hebrew, and then there was the version that was in Greek. The Greek translation is called the Septuagint. Okay? And originally, most of the early Christians were either Gentiles, non-Jews, or they were diaspora Jews, that is, Jews living outside of Jerusalem. So they were Greek-speaking. Okay? So originally, most Christians were Greek-speaking naturally <coughs> they were using the Septuagint for the Greek Bible uh, and that was the case until after the destruction of the Jewish temple in the year 70 the Jewish temple was, was destroyed in the year 70 and sometime after that the Jewish population decided that they would only recognize the Hebrew Bible and they would not recognize the Greek Bible. Yeah, two different Bibles. Part of that, having two different ones, is some of those contain different books. And the Septuagint contains seven additional books. So when the Jews decided that they would only use the Hebrew Bible, they rejected the Septuagint Greek Bible along with the, the seven additional books. Of course, Christians were all Greek and they continued to use the Greek Septuagint Bible. So that, so at the time, soon after the time of Jesus, then you did have, we'll call it the Christian canon, books in the Bible, there were 36 of them, and the Hebrew had decided they would own their canon and only have 29 books. So this is the origin of the difference of the seven books between the Christian Bible and the Hebrew Bible. And that condition existed until until the time of the Protestant Reformation. Right, 
Protestant Reformation under uh, it started under Martin Luther. That was in the 1500s. And part of the Protestant Reformation, they decided that they would go back to the Hebrew Bible and reject the Greek Bible. So they went back to the canon that had only 36, essentially rejecting the seven additional books. So that's how that's how we got developed the difference between the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible. This that symbol plus not equal. Does that mean something? Doesn't this? The Christian canon does not equal the Hebrew canon. It's a not equal oh, sign. Number of That's a not equal sign. Am I the only one that knows? Yes, yeah, my not equal. So if you just two two lines, it means equal. Right. If you draw a line through it, it means not equal. Does it mean it to anybody else except you? I don't know. <laughs> okay. I, I guess I. Look at I, I guess I assumed it did, but maybe not. Do you know what? The, do you know what that means? Okay. You all know now. Well, good. See what good. happens tomorrow. So okay. You don't have to. You don't really have to know what that means, I guess. We'll remember forever. Okay. Okay. So, um, so that's just some general background as to how we got where we are today. Now, uh, and that that condition exists today. Although, again, you will find a softening of the Protestant attitude toward these additional books at the time of Luther. They call, it, they call it the Protestant, uh, you know, Protestant Reformation, like Protestant implying protesting. So they were really looking at differences to the Roman Catholic faith. So part of it was to reject what we had, and they had a basis to do that in the Bible by going back to the Hebrew Bible. Today, most Protestant Bibles are as common for them to include those books maybe as an appendix. All right, that's just some background. Um, uh, something about uh, uh, so the canon are the books that the church recognizes as divinely inspired and uh, one, one word about when the church declares books inspired um, they'll, they'll say that these Again, looking at the Old Testament, these Old Testament books are inspired. These are inspired. So they'll say that not only was the original book inspired, but also when it was translated, that the translated version is also an inspired version. And then eventually, this this Greek <coughs> Bible was translated into Latin, because that became the common language of the people. They call that the Vulgate. Here to the Vulgate translation. So that was translated from Greek into Latin. The church said that translation is also inspired. Um, so you don't have to always go back to the Hebrew Bible to say, well, what was the inspired book and worry about the translations because the church has said that those subsequent translations are also inspired. Because any time you translate, as we're finding out, you can get differences in words. That can have significance. Right? You get a little bit of word difference. Well, which is it? Um, and a, and a, I think a, a really good example where this comes into play is uh, in the, this is, came up when we studied Isaiah. Isaiah 7:14, verse says, "Behold, a maiden will be with child and bear a son." Mm-hmm. 
and she will call his and she will call his name Emmanuel. So the Hebrew word is maiden. Okay. And it's somewhat ambiguous. It could be it could be an unmarried woman, right? Or it could be a virgin, as we understand a virgin. So it has a broad range of meanings. When the when that was translated into the Greek, the word that the Hebrew word that was translated into the Greek, the Greek used the word for virgin. So, like, it specified the meaning, and the church is saying that translation was inspired. So that so we have a basis for saying a virgin born of it of the, will be will be named Emmanuel. <coughs> Okay, just a little aside. Okay, now let's look at the book we're going to talk about till the Reformation. Uh, so we're going to look at Sirach. Um, uh, so again, Sirach is a Deuterocanonical book. It's in the Roman canon, but you won't find it in the Hebrew or Protestant canon. Uh, and it's it's kind of unique because it's one of the books where the author is identified. Most of the books really don't identify the author. This is one that does. Near the end of the book, chapter uh, 50, verse 27, uh, we read, Wise instruction, appropriate proverbs, I have written in this book. I, Yeshua ben Eliezer ben Sirach. Uh, the author is identifying himself in the book. Uh, he wrote his book in Hebrew and they think that he wrote it in Jerusalem in year 180 almost 200 years before Christ a little less than 200 years before Christ and then then his book was translated from Hebrew into Greek by his grandson like he says in the book who is unnamed and the grandson, you'll read this, the grandson tells us this in the prologue he writes to the book. So he's saying, I'm translating my grandfather's book. And scholars think he did this translation in Alexandria or year, around year 132 B.C. And again, to accommodate the Greek-speaking population that lived in Alexandria. Scholars assume that it was excluded from the Hebrew canon because at the time... They only had the Greek version, although in the book it says it was translated from the Hebrew. No Hebrew translation existed at the time of Jesus. Now, subsequently, they found some of the, some parts of this book that were in Hebrew in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in some of the libraries that they unearthed in Alexandria. And the other reason they think it was excluded is that it was written so late in the process. When the Jewish people decided which books to keep and which to exclude, one criteria was it had to be written in Hebrew, and the other is it couldn't be written like in the last couple hundred years before Christ. Like that was considered not acceptable. And this was written, again, they think, around year 180. So that was too much later in the process. Is this translation to be the same? What's that? When they get done translating it and sitting on the table, they should be pretty much reading it through books that say the same thing. Well, I think as we find out, when you translate, 
you can get different words and you can get different meanings. So that's the problem with translation. And I think I said it before, translation really is interpretation. Because right? words are not equal. Sometimes one word in one language will equal three or four words in another language. You've got to pick it out. Right? Or it has different nuances. Okay, and the book is, is named after its uh, author, or derivation derived from its author, Sirach, so it's called Sirach. Um, and it's also called Ecclesiasticus. Ecclesiasticus is actually a word that means church book. So they really don't know why it picked up that title, but the thinking is that it was used for instructing, instructing catechumens early in the church's history. So it was used to prepare people coming into the church. Um, so that's why they think maybe it got the word Ecclesiasticus, meaning church book, but they're really not sure. Uh, the book discusses a, uh, a wide range of topics, like 30 or 40. It's almost like Proverbs. It touches on 30, 40 different subjects. Um, but Roland Murphy in his book, The Tree of Life, picks out three that he thinks are the most significant and the most important. So those are the ones I'm going to touch on today. First, um, Sirach identifies wisdom with Torah. We just mentioned Torah earlier. Torah is usually thought of as the first five books of the Bible, or sometimes it's referred to as the law. Right? So wisdom is equated with Torah or the law. And since Torah or the law is a unique gift that was given to Israel as part of God's covenant <coughs> relationship with Israel, they equally see wisdom also as a unique gift of God to Israel as part of God's covenant with Israel. In Sirach, he we come back to the traditional understanding of wisdom. We kind of got off the track a little bit with Job and Ecclesiastes where they were questioning the traditional understanding of wisdom. Sirach goes back to it where the idea of obedience leads to blessings or life, disobedience leads to curses or death, sometimes referred to as retribution theology, <laughs> negative. That's another theme that comes out strongly in this book. And again, this this theme that we've seen in the other books, the idea of fear of the Lord. This is from Roland Murphy's uh, The Tree of Life. Now, I read a variety of commentators to see, well, how can you outline this book? And most commentators really can't come up or haven't come up with a good outline of what's the structure of the book. Um, but um, but one source that seemed to have a structure that made some sense to me that I'm going to give to you <coughs> is the Navari Bible, which is a translation and also commentary that was made in Spain. Uh, it sees a structure of five elements to this book. And that would make sense if you, if you see the book as uh, one of the main themes is Torah or Pentateuch, because that's the first five books of the Bible. So in this commentary sees a structure of five main parts. We're going to study the first two next week, and then we'll finish up. The, we'll read section, selections of them because it's a long book, and then we'll be we'll study the next three sections in the following week. Uh, and the pattern 
the pattern is that in each of these sections, um, you have like an introduction that kind of gives the main topic of the section, followed by some practical teachings on how to apply that that lesson. So like section one will have, the point is God has the fullness of wisdom. You have an introduction and you just get some practical teachings on what that means. Second was God imbues all his works with wisdom. Themes that we've seen before, right? You can see you can see God's wisdom in creation. Right? God grants wisdom to those who keep his commands. We've heard that before. Fear the Lord and obedience. That's the path that man can follow to gain wisdom. And again, fullness fullness of the wisdom is fear of the Lord. We've heard all this before. That's how you get it. And then some lessons from history. So again, we'll, uh, next week you'll be reading excerpts out of the first two sections, and the second week we'll go on to uh, and finish up the rest in part two. So to put Sirach in the context of the other books, um, we do have uh, the again, traditional understanding of wisdom, which Roland Murphy calls retribution theology. This thing comes up over and over again, so you'll probably be sick of hearing it, but hopefully it'll stick with you for the rest of your life. This idea of obedience leads to blessings of life, disobedience to curses and death. And it all in this book, it all occurs, the point is it occurs in this life. Uh, this is what gave uh, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes such a problem. right? Because if we don't believe in the afterlife, then how do you deal with it? Although we did, I think you'd start to see glimmers of a belief in the afterlife. But generally, those blessings occur in this life. So, I'll say the tension between Job and Ecclesiastes, where they were raising the question, well, my life experience doesn't match this, doesn't really get resolved in this book. This tension continues. Because they revert back to the traditional understanding. So, we looked at Proverbs, where the traditional wisdom is accepted. But we looked at Job, where it was questioned. Like Job says, now wait a minute, I'm a good man, yet I'm suffering. This doesn't make sense. But in the end, Job gets all the blessings. So although Job is bold enough to question it, in the end, traditional wisdom is affirmed. He gets the blessings because he's a good guy. Ecclesiastes, uh, traditional wisdom is rejected because he says, no, it's all vanity. In the end, everybody dies and it doesn't make any difference. Sirach, we're going back to the traditional wisdom being accepted. If you're good, you'll get blessed in this life, and if you're not, you'll get cursed. As with the other books, the one thing that does connect all these books, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and now Sirach, is this idea of wisdom and fear of the Lord. So in Sirach we read, in Sirach 1.12, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. And then in chapter 21.11 we read it again. He who is perfect in fear of the Lord has wisdom. So although, although wisdom is with God, is located with God, and, and because of that is inaccessible to humanity, a path is provided for humanity to reach wisdom, and that path is through fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is, is fear of the Lord is a path 
reach wisdom for humanity. As Roland Murphy expresses it in his book, The Tree of Life, uh, wisdom is with God beyond human reach. However, the Lord has created wisdom, who created wisdom, has communicated this wisdom and lavished it upon her creation. So you can look at it two ways. First of all, you can see it in creation, which you might say it's been lavished on us. So wisdom has now become accessible despite her locus with God. Locus means located with, right? And of course, wisdom is generally referred to as a, as a female sense. Okay, so that's my introduction to Sirach. And I'd just like to keep putting it all in context of our Christian point of view. True wisdom we find with Jesus on the cross. The true wisdom and power of God. We're, we're kind of building up to that. Any questions? Okay, let's say our Father then. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, thank you everybody. Have a good night. Have a good week. Have a good week.